we are now officially uh, eight minutes late, so I'm guessing that you couldn't tear yourself away from the Jen Ree coffee station. Um, so I've got one announcement to make. Uh, if you've ordered a printed paper book and not yet collected, please collect this from the registration desk during the tea break. And if you're not here for death and disease, then you're in the wrong place, so go somewhere else. Okay, so um, I'm chairing the session today. I, I guess it's with my, my CSI hat on, so I have a lot of um, interest in, in death and disability and morbidity and data, as you know. So we've got two presentations today. Um, the first one is from Slivitsa, and I've practiced that a few times. That is the correct, innova the correct innovation, the correct pronunciation. So Slivitsa is talking about the impact of innovative innovation on critical illness products. Um, so Slivitsa is a business development actuary and has been working in Hanover Re for the last 18 months. Before that, she spent 11 years in consulting at Deloitte and Aon, and says she's really enjoying the reinsurance world, and also in particular, the more medical side of it. Um, she took a break to do her masters in maths of finance, so I always have a lot of respect for people who finish their seven, eight, nine, 10, 11 years of actual studying and do something else, so well done for that. And in terms of interests, um, she did the half Ironman, so I think that's very, very impressive. Um, and currently doing house renovations on a house in Parkhurst with her two dogs. Okay, then we have um, Petro talking next, who comes from a a long line of actuaries talking about a lifestyle time bomb. Um, also at Hanover Re and also a business development actuary. She's been there for seven years and previously did three years on pensions. Um, she was a lot more reluctant to give me any more personal background, so all I know about her is that she is a mountaineer or enjoys mountaineering. Um, so Slavica is going to wander up and down in the front and Pietro doesn't want to sit to the stage, I'll be by myself here for a while. But um, we, we've got about 15 minutes, and I think the presentations are 20 to 25 minutes each. We're going to do both presentations together, and then we'll do questions afterwards. So, Slavica, over to you. Good morning. Um, and on that note, if anyone knows a good skirting supply, please speak to me afterwards. I'm battling <laughs> I am really loving this turnout here, and the first thing that I'm going to say is that my heading is not entirely correct. It's not that I'm not going to be talking about innovation, it's not that I'm not going to be talking about criticalness, yes on both accounts. However, the innovation that I'm going to be talking about doesn't only pertain to cancers and benefits and incidents, actually it affects mortality, and depending on how you define your disability products it affects those as well. So triple whammy in that case. What innovation am I going to be talking about? I'm going to be a doctor for the day. We are going to be looking at the medical side of things. We're going to be looking at innovation screening, diagnostics, even treatment of patients. Now innovation is not something new. Okay, so I've discredited one part of my topic. Now I'm about to discredit the other part. It's not new. In fact, as long as we've been around and the doctors, we've been innovating the whole time. So why am I standing here and talking to you? Because innovation is speeding up. It has been speeding up, and I'm concerned at the pace at which it's speeding up, it's getting us on a bit of a back foot. That we are actually not ready for everything that's coming our way, and we've got a price for it now. And then the other thing that's happening is, yes, surely there's innovation in terms of the treatment that the doctors are using 
for various cancers and heart surgeries and so on. But innovation is taking a twist. It's putting the power into the consumer's hands. Previously, and I'm sure a number of you did it, if you had certain symptoms, you would use Google and decided you got all the illnesses listed. Now there are devices that are measuring things quite accurately and sending you the data where? On your phone, on the laptop, you are sitting with the data as the consumer. And us as the insurance industry are not. And we don't want to not to sit with data. And that is a little bit of a problem. Okay, well, let's look at this. The example that I would like to use for how innovation is progressing is heart surgery. Unlike other surgeries, heart surgery has only been around for about 130 years or so. I reckon, thank goodness for that, because the anesthetics only started to be used in the 1840s. So, good thing it waited a little bit. In fact, even a little bit later than that, in the 1800s, doctors would often say that if another doctor attempted to perform heart surgery, he should lose respect of his peers. So there was even a stigma attached to that. Well, that changed. Not much is known about the first successful heart surgery, apart from the fact that the patient survived. It was also performed on the 22-year-old gardener who had a stab wound. It wasn't in Joburg, it was in Frankfurt. That's happened there as well. At that stage, a 40% survival was really good from any surgery. Moving on to another disruptive event, the Second World War. A lot of soldiers were coming back from the battlefront with various wounds, including bullets and, um, and fragments, shell fragments lodged in their hearts. Not to operate on that would be fatal. However, there wasn't really a good surgery method in order to dislodge this. One U.S. Army surgeon decided, okay, he's going to practice, he's going to get this technique right. He took 14 animals, operated them on, on them, they all died. Took another 14, half of them died. Took another 14, two died. Good enough, let's move on to humans. <laughs> he did. They all survived. What was the technique? Finger. Finger, I'm going to call it a finger digging technique. He would open up the surgeons and he would open up the heart and like, make an incision and feel around and dig it out. Well, that was actually considered good enough for opening up defective valves, the narrowed valves in the heart. What was the problem with that? Well, it was performed in the beating heart, and you can imagine that that's quite complicated. Secondly, you have about four minutes until the patient bleeds to death. If you stop the blood flow, then there is the, uh, then the brain is deprived of oxygen, not good either. Four minutes, not very good. Thank goodness, a few years later, they decided that if you cool the patient down to about 27 degrees core temperature, the window is extended to 10 minutes. Things got better. First open heart surgeries started being performed around then, which means that the, uh, that the surgeon actually can see what's going on. 10 minutes, still a little low. Thank goodness for the heart and lung machine, that was invented around 1958. Now what that does is that it takes the blood and it reoxygenates re it outside the body so that the brain is not deprived, the tissue is not deprived, and you're able to perform longer, more complex surgeries. So much so that our coronary artery bypass graft was first performed in the 1960s. The surgeon, however, even though it was successful, there was still quite a lot of stigma attached to this, 
that she never performed the surgery again, even though it was a success. Innovation keeps marching on, and we got to mention our own Dr. Christian Barnard with first successful heart transplant in 1967. And from then on, things kept, carried on progressing. By, 2000, uh, by 1994, there were 2,000 successful open heart surgeries a day worldwide. How much things have moved. However, one of the problems with the open heart surgery is that it actually requires the patient to be fit enough to undergo the surgery. Why? Well, the cut is made through the breastbone. I don't even want to imagine what happens until they get to the heart. Heart and lung machine, it's quite expensive. Five to ten nights hospital stay, followed by three months upwards recuperation at home. Expensive surgery, expensive recuperation. We do cover it, yes, we do cover it on our critical illness products. But by 2007, the minimally invasive keyhole surgery started being used. This first is, um, well, the first reference that I got is for the UK. What is the difference here? Instead of butchering the body, I'm an actuary, <laughs> not the doctor. The incision was made between the ribs, so a lot less taxing on the body. So some patients that could not qualify for the open heart surgery because they were not strong enough for it could now have this minimally invasive keyhole surgery. About two nights hospital stay, two weeks later, you're back on your feet, and it is cheaper. We have adjusted to this in the industry, so somewhere we have tiered critical illness payments. We will have a lower payout for this because the person is back on their feet, it's cheaper and so on. Oh, and more things are happening. In fact, this year, the first 3D heart was used in, for surgery. Not in surgery, it was used for planning. There was a young five-year-old patient who had a very severe defect and had the surgeons not printed the actual heart, and looked at it and planned the surgery, it probably wouldn't have been the success that it was. However, there's even more to that. The 3D printers have been around for a little while, and I've even heard that some people have started making them at home. But what has been the issue is that printing soft material was complicated because the material will collapse under its own weight when it's printed. So printing something like organ tissue would be rather impossible. This year, they have actually come up with a technique. They would print it in a solution so that it holds shape as it's being printed. And surely, soon enough, we're going to see this. In fact, where are we going to go to from here? Has anybody watched the island, Ewan McGregor and Scarlett Johansson? Yes. It's set in 2019. If that happens, yes, when we have to price for it? Now. If you haven't watched the movie, I'm sorry, I spoiled it for you. My favorite example in screening is a so-called smart bra. Now, smart bra looks quite a lot like a sports bra, except on the inside of it, it's got these microthermal linings. So they measure temperature changes. Now, what does that do? Um, I like the body can change temperature throughout the day for normal reasons, and that's, that's fine. Exercise, um, hormone stress, me being up here. However, a growing tumor has got a particular heat signature. And the blood vessels to grow, that are growing to feed this growing tumor have got a particular heat signature. The heat signature that the smart bra can pick up. 
that can pick up six years earlier than a mammogram with over 90% accuracy at a cost on par, it hasn't launched yet, on par with a mammogram. Amazing. Absolutely. I mean, what's that going to do with early cancer detection? It's in its fourth clinical trial, so I think it's going to be FDA approved pretty soon. Something that a consumer is going to buy and it's going to give him accurate results. Her. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe him. <laughs> accurate results. With? On their, on their app, on their laptop, on their phone, not in a doctor's report. We have a problem here. Yeah. I really encourage you to Google this. It's, it's actually, there's a lovely video that shows how the tumor grows and when it can be picked up by a mammogram and then it rolls back six years and shows when the smart bra can pick it up. However, please make sure that when you Google it, that you say smart bra cancer. I didn't the first time around, and I found there are two other uses. <laughs> and I have a feeling you know about them, yes. <laughs> detects true love, uh -huh. and it also detects emotional eating, which I'm a little worried about, because if I'm to wear one of those and it gets zapped every time I look at the fridge, yeah. <laughs> the cancer has had so much other attention. In fact, um, in 2001, and the entire human genome has been mapped. So we know what every gene codes for. We've also found out that we are 50% identical to a banana. Okay, let's focus on the other 15%. <laughs> but at the same time, more recently, we've also been looking at cancer genomes, mapping, finding out the genetics of the cancer. So what are the implications of that? Well, previously, if somebody got diagnosed with cancer, it will be diagnosed by its location. So stomach cancer, stage one, two, or whatever. It's by its location. The treatment that would be given for that cancer would be the treatment that typically works for that cancer. So chemotherapy has proven to work. Chemotherapy it is. However, stomach cancer and stomach cancer and stomach cancer is not the same because the mutations can be different. Why that cell became a cancer cell can be different. And now that the cancer genome is being mapped, and it's still being because there's so many different mutations, now that is actually being looked at. And when we know why that cell started behaving like a tumor, we know how to treat it. In fact, they have developed the so-called targeted cancer treatment that targets the cell, that doesn't destroy everything it's part, like chemotherapy does, but it targets that cell stops it from growing further. At the same time, tumors are sneaky because they hide away from your immune system. So your immune system um, doesn't know that that's a bad cell to zap it and kill it. Now it wakes up the immune, the immune system at the same time. It says, hey, that's a tumor. That's bad. Go and destroy it. Huge implication. At the same time, we know even more. We know what is the five-year probability of this cancer recurring. What's the 10-year probability of this cancer spreading based on the genetics of their cancer? So it, moving back from doctors to insurance industry, if we know that, do we have a reason not to cover, not to give terms or, and, or to give hefty exclusions to somebody whose cancer is not going to recur and it's not going to spread? It's opened up a world of possibilities. 
Moving back to the patient. So now we look to the cancer. Moving back to the patient, um, we, can, we also have the genes, so we know which are the genes that code for the metabolism. How fast is a person's metabolism? And that is the so-called pharmacogenomics. How fast, how do they react to the drugs? Why is that important? Well, the dosage. Somebody with a faster metabolism needs more of the drug than somebody with a slower metabolism. We also know the side effects. So we can combine the treatment that has the highest chance of success, that is the right treatment for that mutation of the cancer, with the dosage, knowing the side effects for that particular patient. So, and all of that before the patient even started using the treatment. So can you imagine what the implications are on somebody who has cancer, who would typically go for chemotherapy and it wouldn't necessarily work, who would then go for radiation, it wouldn't work. The emotional journey is actually quite taxing. And I've seen somebody get their hopes up and down and get their hopes up and down. And this is before they even start the treatment. So that person has got the most chance of leading the most best life that they can. Absolutely amazing. And that just scratches the surface. Something as simple as Dr. Moore, it's, not, it's actually not one app. There are many versions out there if you go search for it. It takes a picture of the mole that you're worried about, and it uses a data algorithm based on the shape, the size, the asymmetry, and gives you a risk factor. It gets about a third of them wrong, but it's still information that the consumer has on their phone. Information that we don't have as insurance industry, information that we can't use at claim stage. Even the Google Lens, I think quite a lot of people have started hearing about it. It's only due to launch in 2019, but it seems to be going ahead of schedule. Um, it measures the glucose levels in the tears, which are correlated to the blood glucose levels, which we know is an indicator of uh, diabetes. It's also an indicator of first some heart attacks and certain cancers. And what I would like to call the Angelina Jolie of the test, becoming more common practice and reasonably priced in South Africa, you can either, or reason price, not for the whole entire genome, but for a battery of genes that may be worrying your GP. If you know that you've got certain mutations, such as Angelina Jolie found out she's, she has the mutation of the BRCA1, and the BRCA2 genes. And what that meant was that her chance of getting breast cancer was 80%. Not up 80%, 80%, almost certainty. So you can do something about it. And then there is so much more. This just hardly scratches the surface. But the question is, what, what are we going to do about this? Actually, I've got to mention data. And we love data. What data? We have, we tend to analyze past experience in order to do the pricing. We add trends for the improvements. But at this speed, it seems that the trend is more important than the past data. So where are we going to go? And I think here we're going to turn to the doctors a lot more. We need to keep the reason why these products exist. They exist for a purpose, and the purpose needs to be maintained. And I think there is a lot of purpose for the critical in this product. They're flexible product. You can use the payout for what you need. One of them is for treatments that the medical aid can't pay on. And some of these treatments are new. They're not always available in South Africa. For example, immunotherapy, just one session of the immunotherapy that's waking up the immune system when you, for the cancer, 
It's about $10,000. It's about $100,000 for a year. You're going to quickly run out of medical aid funds on that. I've also mentioned the issue that we are no longer sitting with this data, with this data about the consumer's accurate data, their screening data that they have on their cell phones, laptops. And that is a problem. Um, how are we going to work that in? Can we ask for it in underwriting stage? Can you verify against it at, consumers, uh, at, at claim stage? And yes, it is a risk, but you know what? It's also an opportunity. In the life industry, we have battled with a question of engaging with a consumer after the sale has been made. I think the short-term industry gets it, gets it much better, maybe because of annual renewals, but we've been looking at ways of keeping engaged with a customer. We also found lately we live in an age of gamification. We count steps and if we don't reach 10,000 steps, even after 15 coffees to the January station, we are grumpy because we don't get our points. We like games, we like getting targets. So what if we actually jumped the gun and instead of going behind these devices and going, how are we going to get this information? What if we turned things around a little bit? So what if we went as crazy as saying, I'm not going to underwrite you much now. Here's a smart bra. Here's a link to Dr. Moore. Here's a Google, a Google Lens. Every time you send us the data, we're going to give you a discount of the same base. It may seem a little far-fetched, but on the other hand, how long ago was it that we weren't going to ensure HIV-positive lives, and now we're looking at giving them benefits? I think it's, it's time to think about these things a bit differently, isn't it? Thank you. Thanks, Libertia. Um, you may have seen me scurrying from the stage. That wasn't because I was feeling lonely. As an introvert, this is actually my happy place being by myself. But I found myself, um, I'm sitting behind the speakers. I was the only person who couldn't actually hear what she was saying. So as a chairperson, I thought I should. Um, so while we get ready for Petro, just one, uh, one piece of advice. Looking at, at slide number two there. So um, my lessons for a long and happy marriage are to have enough of an overlap in the Venn diagram of interest between you and your spouse. And me and my wife, uh, we love playing Scrabble. And um, one anniversary, about four years ago, I took the day off from work. And the two of us went to the Christian Barnard Memorial Hospital, the uh, Crudescure, to look at the, the Heart Transplant Museum. So if you find yourself with a couple of hours in Cape Town to spare, I recommend that's where you spend it, with your spouse. We did spend the evening have a, having a couple's massage and dinner, so it, wasn't, it was a bit of <laughs> Okay, Petra, over to you. I feel like I'm on my soapbox now, but in any case. Now, after what Slavica said, wouldn't it be great if we could find a genetic variant that, for example, indicates an increased likelihood of not maintaining a healthy balance in life? And I wonder what changes are in the pipeline for our life insurance industry when it comes to all of these developments. Certainly, there'll definitely be some interesting challenges ahead, particularly on the underwriting side. But I would like to ignore the underwriting implications for now and instead focus on the fact that we should see a reduction 
in the total claims that we observe. But more specifically, we should see a reduction in the natural claims that we observe. Now, does that not mean that the non-natural component and non-natural claims become even more important and that it will and it should occupy much more of our attention? We are all aware of various lifestyle factors that affect what we do in life insurance, as well as the impact that many of these factors have on the risks that we face with on a daily basis. We spend time on factors such as smoking and diet, more specifically probably BMI, and so forth. But what we're really looking at is assessing how these factors influence an in individuals' risk of certain diseases. The link between certain lifestyle factors and these diseases are well-researched both in the medical industry as well as in our industry. So we'll look at the link between, for example, a high BMI and, and high blood pressure readings and, and incorporate this when we're rating individuals. There would definitely be scope to extend this when we're looking um, you know, at the results coming out from the results in our plenary session, talking about blue zones and things. But, but at least this is something that we spend a large part of our time on. But, we, but what we don't necessarily spend our time on is assessing how these factors contribute towards an individual's attitude towards risk and their behavior when it comes to risky activities. And as a consequence, the effect that these lifestyle factors have on non-natural causes of claim. Now I have to apologize, the bottom of the graph has uh, the labels are cut off, but at the bottom is just essentially age. So what this graph clearly shows, and obviously shows, is the mortality rates for some population. On closer inspection, the accident hump might be a bit extreme, and the increase at the older ages potentially not quite showing that exponential shape that we've grown accustomed to seeing. But in reality, this graph shows the non-natural component of our South African insured mortality rate. So we learn about the accident hump at the younger ages, but then we also learn that it reduces as individuals get older. However, that doesn't paint the full picture. And the fact that we often refer to non-natural causes of death as accidental causes is symptomatic of this, because in reality we focus on motor vehicle accidents and we don't really spend enough time assessing the other remaining non-natural causes. Now this graph shows the claim rates from motor vehicle accidents alone. So the accident hump is very evident. But then we don't see that decline by age that I would have expected. In fact, arguably, the rates beyond age 35 remains fairly flat. And when I add the total cost from other non-natural events, this is where the differences come in to what we've expected. Because 
The other, the other non-natural causes, this component is significant, but importantly, it also increases with age. And this completely changes the shape of the non-natural component that we see in South Africa. Now the red bar at the bottom of this graph shows the non-natural mortality cost for our South African insured population. And the gray area above that shows the natural cost coming through. And so together it rep represents the total cost that we have. And you can see that this red bar accounts for a continuous band across our entire mortality curve. So that ranges from the age of 20 on, on the one side and age 65 and above at the other. And so what this means and what I take home from this is the fact that we don't have an accident hump in South Africa. We in fact have an accidental plateau. And non-natural causes accounts for a significant part of the risk at all ages. At this point, however, I think it's probably useful to just take a step back. The experience that underlies the results that I've used in these, in, in these graphs is based on a combined experience investigation performed by Hanover Rhee. So it's a combination of results from six different large traditional insurers um, spanning a, a period of seven years. I should also probably point out that none of the contributing companies account for more than 25% of either the exposure or the claims. And so we feel that it's a pretty representative and well-diversified portfolio. And we think it pretty accurately represents the average market experience. Further, these results are only in respect of people classified as standard lives. So no individuals with avocational loadings or medical loadings are included in these results. And we've gotten about 12,500 such standard claims. So again, this mortality curve is the aggregate for our insured population. So I've taken the risk factor specific rates and combined it using the actual exposure for our insured profile. Now this graph represents the total mortality rate that I've split into the two main contributing causes. So the red bar shows the non-natural component and the, the gray bar shows the natural component by age. And so to, to illustrate this, at the ages of 20 to 24, so on your left-hand side of the screen, the non-natural component accounts for 95% of the total claims that we see. Now this value systematically reduces as individuals get older, which we would expect because natural claims become more important and more prevalent as people age. But this value still sits at about 15% of the total cost at ages 65 and above. And I think it's also important to point out that at the ages of 50, non-natural cost is still 40% of the total mortality cost. Now you may ask, why is this relevant or why is it important? And these results are put into perspective when I compare it against the results emerging from some other insured markets across the world. Now the red block here represents, again, the South African insured mortality rate, but for a male non-smoker life. 
And when I add this gray bar, that, is, that represents the rates from, uh, used by our company in the UK. And so also, again, the, non, I mean, the, the rates used by them for male non-smoker lives. And you'll see, and here, the massive discrepancies become very clear. So to put these values into perspective, this graph shows the South African rates relative to the UK rates. And you can see that at the young ages, so the first bar on the left being the ages between 20 and 24, our rate is six times the rate being used in the UK. At the ages of 35 to 40, our rate is still two and a half times the respective rate. Now there is no conceivable way that this is being driven by natural causes. And that's clear because at the older ages, the rates between the two populations are pretty similar. And the major differences that we observe are at the younger ages. And the explanation really is the non-natural component of death. Our non-natural component accounts for more than four to nine times that in the UK. Now these are absolutely massive numbers that we are talking about. So it's important for us to understand what is driving our very poor experience in the non-natural arena. And so we now turn our focus to analyzing the more detailed causes of claim. And the graph on your screen now shows the contribution to the total non-natural cost of motor vehicle accidents. So we see it does reduce as individuals get older. But having said that, it still accounts for almost 40% of the total non-natural causes for people over the age of 60. Surprisingly and worryingly, the second most prevalent cause accounting for, uh, or adding to this non-natural cost is violent assaults, which is a significant contribution and gets significantly more as individuals age. Even more worryingly, the third most prevalent one in South Africa is, is violent assaults. Oh, okay, well, <laughs> sorry, I'm not sure what's happening with this, but in any case, so the third most prevalent one is, is the violent assaults. Um, and together, the two of these, or these three components actually account for almost 90% of the total non-natural claims that we see. And the remainder of these causes are then made up of, of things like aviation accidents, drowning, um, major burns, and so forth. But there's no arguing about it. Stress, alcohol consumption, drug use, sleep, and work demands all these lifestyle factors play a very large role in these claims. Now you've seen this graph before, but it's important that when looking at, at the rates that we charge, that we take into account the exposure profiles for the insured population. And for our insured population, 86% of the total exposure is in respect of individuals between the ages of 20 and 55. When we zoom in on this segment of the total cost, you'll see that the non-natural component really is a very big component of the total cost for the, the ages that matter to us in the insured population. 
But we now turn our attention to an even smaller subset of data, a 40-year-old male. So let's call him Joe. And let Joe represent our average insured person, so average Joe. And, and he's a 40-year-old man that doesn't smoke. And I should probably point out that Joe doesn't do any of these rateable activities such as paragliding or some extreme motorsports. For Joe, the likelihood of dying from natural causes such as cancers or heart attacks is only 42%. This means that Joe almost has a 60% chance of dying from non-natural causes. If we then look at the typical underwriting requirements for people like Joe, most of the insurers would require an HIV test, which um, potentially some kind of short medical report, which will check your blood pressure, uh, your BMI, and your urine, as well as a completed application form covering about 30 medical questions. However, when repricing or underwriting, we very rarely take into account the lifestyle factors which show whether this person has an increased risk of an accidental or non-natural claim. So put it into perspective. We ask several questions. We check the BMI and the blood pressure, trying to see whether the risk of cardiovascular disease is significant for someone like Joe. But cardiovascular causes only accounts for 10% of the total deaths seen for people like Joe. And contrast that then with the value from motor vehicle accidents sitting at 33%. And we're not really spending any time rating that risk. Now, I am by no means advocating that we change our approach to medical underwriting. After all, that is the reason why the total natural component is only sitting at 40%. But I am questioning why we're not finding ways to assess the remaining 60% of the risk. What this means is that people like average Joe is actually a combination of people like crazy Joe and conservative Joe. And it's very infrequent that we actually differentiate between these two types of individuals when we're rating for life insurance. This is, again, in spite of the fact that MVAs accounts for about a third of the total deaths that we see for people age 40. In fact, we're quick to double up on accidental cover or to offer accidental cover without any underwriting. Our attitude towards these risks are incorrect. So if we assume that the total risk for someone like Joe, this average Joe, is one. Sorry guys, the bottom bar represents the natural causes. The second very red bar is, is MVAs. I believe the, sec the third one is then for um, avia I mean, suicides and then violent assaults and then the remainder. Um, so, but if we were able to then identify individuals that pose a larger than normal risk for just two components, so MVAs and suicides, and as a consequence, we're able to reduce those claims that we see by 20%, we would have a 10% reduction in the total risk cost for these lives. 
Now, if we increase that reduction in the incidence by as much as 50%, we will have a saving of more than 20%. Now, these are very large numbers that we could potentially achieve without that much more effort. In effect, what it means is that we've almost included a 25% extra mortality loading on all people like conservative Joe in our standard pool by not identifying policyholders that pose a high accidental risk. And across the whole age band, what it means is that our, natural, our total mortality curve sitting at that level could move down to that level with these savings on the pure risk cost of policies that we ensure in our standard pool. Now the cost of non-natural claims to the South African insurance environment is significant. Suicides, um, violent assaults and even motor vehicle accidents play a much larger role in the risk than we think. It's much more significant than the cost in other countries and yet we use very similar processes when we deal with segmenting and understanding these risks. We are misallocating our emphasis and looking for risk in the wrong place. I understand that we're frequently constrained by factors such as clients and brokers not wanting to answer additional questions, which could limit the scope we have to add additional questions onto, onto our questionnaires. But there are certain fields such as marital status, alcohol consumption, which we typically don't even use. That's also probably in part because it is quite controversial if we start rating based on your marital status. But is it not time that we start incorporating this information that we already have to assess the lifestyle risk? Let's also integrate some of the techniques used by, by our short-term colleagues to help in this risk assessment. But in truth, Non-natural risk assessment is probably quite a complex, multifactorial, will require a multifactorial approach, not only taking into account binary factors such as marital status. We would need to build a profile for individuals to classify them into different non-natural risk categories. But we're entering an era of, a new era of medical advances. Who knows, we may even identify a genetic variant that helps us to partially at least determine your attitude towards risk. But genomes and genetic testing and these treatment methods, which are increasingly becoming a reality, and importantly, it's becoming a reality for normal people and not only for a few privileged individuals. Even in this space, in the realm of, of natural diseases, lifestyle factors and environmental influences play a very large role. And of course, these lifestyle factors drive the non-natural deaths that we see, which will mean that lifestyle factors will be the most significant driver of insurance costs in the future. Risks that we, in the life insurance industry, don't really understand us yet. And so in my view, an, a lifestyle time bomb.
I'd like to thank both speakers for sticking strictly to their time limits, so well done. Um, it's eight minutes to 12, so we've got eight minutes for questions, but I might steal a couple of minutes of your lunch, since you were, some of you were late. So, any questions? The guy with the funny moustache at the front. <laughs> David O'Brien still wants you to give money to him as well. So I suppose we, we heard last night about ethics and, sorry, I'm not going to attempt to pronounce the first speaker's name, but the first speaker mentioned about genomes, etc., etc. In The business of insurance exists on an asymmetry of information and it exists on the grouping of risk. Uh, Petro clearly shows that there's a lot more issues than genomes in the whole pool, but where as actuaries do we begin to draw the line on genetic testing? Because to, your, to the point made in the first presentation, non-disclosure, if I'm in the presence of that information and then I non-disclose it and that subsequently emerges, my, my insurance is invalid. But I'm very concerned about the, the disruption of the industry while we get a narrower and narrower perspective on risk. So I appreciate some thoughts on the ethical position. Yeah. Um, it is an interesting question indeed. In fact, um, I haven't touched upon genetic testing when it comes to underwriting. So re requesting somebody to go for genetic testing, I believe we can't do that. Um, and it is an interesting question when it comes to, well, at what point does a group, is a group no longer a group? At what point is this actually you know, predetermined, predetermined by your genes, almost like a savings policy, saying, well, We've analyzed your genomes and you are going to get that cancer in 20 years time and this is the endowment to match it. So yes, it's, a bit, it's dangerous to steer into, that, into those waters. Um, however, we cannot ignore innovation at the same time, innovation in devices. Even, I mean, even the Fitbit that measures your resting heart rate. Mm -hmm. And I believe innovation will take place and it will take place in our products but it has to take place within norms that still allow for risk pooling. So we have to strike the right balance. And I'd also just like to, to add to that. I mean, you know, it, it calls into question the need for critical illness products. For certain people, if you have a genetic test done um, and everything's negative, why would you need a CI policy? And on the other hand, if it comes back positive, then absolutely you're going to take out as much CI cover as you possibly can. Um, you know, and so what are we going to do in the industry about that? And I think those are very relevant questions that, that need to be answered very quickly. I think, uh, sorry, just one more comment. The, the, perhaps we can already use an existing example, which is the scan for life. Um, I've seen like practically every other, I don't know why, in-flight magazines. And got scanned for life, the ads, and what did that do to our industry? I don't think it did much. It's still policy behavior is policy be, policyholders' behavior. So we still have a variety of people out there, and some are jumping to know, and some really don't want to know. I mean, I think, it, Dave, that is a, it's a very complex question, and maybe we need to allow some more time to find an oblique solution to it. <laughs> um. With respect to the second presentation, marvelous one, very practical to the South African scenario. Um, I think on your second slide, you had something to do with the several factors that we have that might be affecting uh, our lifestyles. 
But I think the one factor that probably I didn't see uh, being uh, shown explicitly as I would have loved is the one to do with the indebted ratio of South Africans. South Africans are reported to be heavily indebted. I remember Franz Maguire from Metropolitan saying that the uh, uh, call center had 60% of the people having Ghanishi orders. So well, if the population is indebted heavily so, then that's where the big problems comes. And I feel that probably, I don't know, if we look at the indebtedness ratio of the people, that's when we can actually start and say, smoking will become as a problem resulting from indebtedness. Uh, marital affair problems, car accident. I mean, just for example, uh, an average Joe that I grew up in the townships probably goes, gets a job in the mine because he doesn't know what money is, heavily indebted to the bank, car, drives it fast like no one's business, he gets killed. But the real problem actually was indebtedness, not really the motor car accident. No, absolutely. I mean, I completely agree with you. Jenny? Thank you. Maybe just one of the other challenges we might face in the critical illness space is um, traditionally you've forced or required for critical illness payout that you um, policyholders might have gone for a certain treatment already. Um, so it was might needed to go for a certain procedure and, and more and more you might find that policyholders will choose not to go for a certain treatment. So we'll, we'll have some difficulty in that space. I think breast cancer is a good example of where more, more and more people are say that I don't want to go for the aggressive treatments. I'll rather take the wait and see approach. So that's also something potentially um, tricky in the critical illness space in, in future. And, and then maybe just a comment. Um, sort of, um, so we talked about the smart bra now. And we, we often. Uh, forget that males also get breast cancer, so it'll be interesting um, that what the solution will be for males and whether they'll um, create a similar um, for prostate cancer, maybe a similar device. I think <laughs> I'm actually expecting to see smarty pants before the male smart bra. I can't promise I'll wear a smart bra, but I will wear a smart vest. I mean, um, Slavica, maybe for this, the other question, but um, given all these uncertainties about critical illness, uh, do you think the time has come for us to stop guaranteeing the rates for the CI? That is a very interesting question because, you know, these products still have a place. If we don't guarantee the rates, if, if we change them for somebody who's already bought a product and in two years' time they um, there are different procedures, then what is the validity of the insurance product? So I, th I would say let's also look at a, let's look at a customer. However, what, what we may see is that product development will be happening more and more frequently. There will be product revamps more and more frequently. So you've got you to look at a customer as well. You I was just doing some um, competitor research. Um, so this question over there. So I did, I, I'm Increase not, the rates by 50%. Uh, many of you will know that I actually have quite strong views about guarantees. I don't think guarantees are always a good thing. They're sold as a good thing, but I think there's a lot of downside to guarantees as well. So. 
Yeah. Thank you for two uh, very informative talks. Uh, I work in the medical scheme space. Um, uh, in a very data-rich environment. And for whatever reason, there seems to be this uh, great divide between life and critical illness and healthcare through medical schemes in South Africa. All of the things that you're talking about here affect medical schemes in the same kind of way. Sometimes it manifests differently. Those fancy technologies cost a lot of money through the medical schemes. Um, but I think the difference is that uh, in, the, in the health funding environment, medical scheme environment, um, health insurance environment, the, the frequency of interacting with customers and patients is much more. It's a much more data-rich environment. So what we'd be interested in, in seeing is a closer collaboration between those two lines of business. Uh, I think there's a lot of synergies to explore. There's similar issues faced by both. Um, and I think there's, there's you know, potentially uh, some value to be unlocked uh, with closer collaboration. Do it um, two, three more questions. One, two, three. Um, my question related to both the speakers is around maybe the role of um, more proactive product design that impact the behavior rather than the reactive underwriting and pricing approach. What's your take on that? For example, on the first speaker on once we have had much more accurate uh, screenings, genetic testing as an example, where it may not be diagnostic, but may reveal the high risk of a specific genetic condition, take diabetes for example, then what role is there for actuaries and just insurers in general to have products that will really encourage then the change in behavior for such customers or clients rather than the punitive, uh, some, uh, sometimes permanent uh, underwriting. The second speaker, it's really again on the behavior change. So look at the reckless Joe, um, to what extent, again, we need to be able to change the behavior in the way that we structure our product and our incentives through the product, rather than uh, have a permanent, somehow, uh, punitive underwriting and pricing, where the behavior for Joe may naturally change as they mature, for example, or we can also, through the uh, product, be able to change and impact it. I think from my side, um these wearable devices really do provide the opportunity to, um, to drive the right behavior, um, especially now when we're having more and more of these devices that, that encourage gamification, counting points and so on. And encouraging somebody whom you already issued a policy that for an X, per, X percent discount, um, that you will, you will give them whether, if they submit the results of a scan, whatever the scan is is promoting good policyholder behavior because if there is something wrong, if they, if they detect something, they detect it earlier at a stage when the chance of success is better. So I think ongoing underwriting where, um, where possible is really going to be a win-win situation. Thanks. Very nice papers, guys. My first question was actually the exact same one. So I have a view that we, shouldn't, we should try to be using this information in a more positive way rather than just in underwriting. So working it into things like behavior change, etc. My second question is probably less, you know, less important, but to Petro, there was a slide about the average Joe. I'm just trying to understand the one data point. So when you show the 60-40 split between um, natural and unnatural death, is that, is that for the death rate at 40 or for you know, the cumulative mortality from age 40 till whenever. 
because I guess that that impacts how you how you interpret the the overall impact of changing the the unnatural component. Yeah, that, that slide with the average Joe was really for people age 40. Um, so the 60-40 split is, is at that age. But having said that, overall, um, the non-natural component accounted for 43% of the total claims that we paid out. So of course, as people get older, we pay a lot more natural claims. So um, I would have expected that, that value to be much lower in, in, in any case. Okay, last question, then I want to wrap up for lunch. Mark at the front, please. I'd really, much, I'd really like to congratulate Peter on, on a most interesting talk, actually both of you. I didn't, really didn't know which session to attend and I was, I'm so glad I came here. This has <laughs> really exceeded all expectations. Thank you. I've, I thought that after 35 years in the industry, I sort of knew most of it was to know about mortality rates and really this is a, an extremely interesting analysis. Uh, the only thing that I'd actually like to to add to it is that I'd like you to, to show the um, impact of alcohol on the uh, accident, uh, motor accident deaths, because I think that's the one place where, where you can actually do something about it, and I'd really like to see that analysis well, but thank you very much. I thought it was great. Okay, um, maybe just to wrap up, I have actually seen a presentation on, on the smart bra before, and uh, I'm shamelessly stealing one of my, my colleague's ideas, Thomas. He said he thought there was a much better use of the smart bra because it does help to tell your mood. So I can see a scenario sitting in the office. Um, <laughs> it's half past five in the afternoon and I'm getting ready to go home and suddenly my, my, my smartphone lights up with a big red flashing thing saying, uh, wife and both daughters, bad mood, perfect storm, perfect storm, don't go home. <laughs> so um, so that, that's what I'm waiting for. But um, yeah, I think the very good questions, a lot of interaction. The fact that there's so many of you sh here show that this is a very uh, interesting topic. So one last round of applause for both our speakers. <laughs> Time for lunch. <laughs>